ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kia ora koutou. Ko Kate Calcott toku ingoa, ko o te kaiarahi mahi putaiao oaha, my name is Kate Calcott and I am the Senior Science and Innovation Officer at the British High Commission. Our guest today is Professor David Murdoch, the Dean of the Christchurch Campus at the University of Otago and co-leader of the Infection Group, the co-leader of One Health Aotearoa, a Senior Associate on the Department of International Health and John Hopkins School of Public Health and a Clinical Microbiologist at the Canterbury Health Laboratories. Professor Murdoch's main research interests include epidemiology and the diagnosis and prevention of a range of infectious diseases. Recently, Professor Murdoch was awarded the University of Otago's highest honour, the Distinguished Research Medal, as a result of his world-recognised work in the study, prevention and treatment of infectious diseases, particularly pneumonia and other respiratory infections. Haere mai. Welcome, Professor. Thank you for joining us. Kia ora, Kate. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Firstly, I must say, what a year to be working on infectious diseases. What is it like working on something so topical? Yes, it has been a, a rather extraordinary year and, and one that's been very busy, very exhilarating. Um, and yes, it, it is... Um, you know, degree of excitement about something that has been, uh, you know, a particular interest of mine, respiratory infections, but also balanced against the fact that, uh, you know, the impact on the world and the hardships people are going through. So excitement, but not necessarily a lot of pleasure because, you know, this is a pretty serious thing that we're, we're faced with at the moment. Tell me a bit about your career pathway. What initially drove you to this work? Well, I guess the, the interest in infectious diseases first came about when I was at medical school. I can still remember some of the early lectures. Uh, we had a very inspirational lecturer, Sandy Smith, who sadly passed away recently. But that, that, um, that interest grew um, through medical school. But I think probably uh, toward the end of medical school and, tra and traveling afterwards, we're really getting an understanding that infectious diseases were fairly important on the global stage and that they're very much linked to inequity and um, so the combination of, uh, of the global importance and just a, a fascination with infectious diseases led me, I guess, towards having that as a, as a specialty. We definitely need more infectious disease experts and that we're such a globally connected society now um, and things I imagine are spreading in, in ways that we never expected possible in the rate that we never expected possible. I understand you have spent a bit of time working in Nepal. Can you tell me about this work and why this connection mm. is important to you? Yes, my, my wife and I, my wife is also, in, was in the same class at medical school and we travelled in our, our final year as, during an elective period and, and went to Nepal. And really it was uh, quite a life-changing event, really my first overseas travel, uh, exposure to um, quite a different health system and, and different uh, cultures, uh, and that led uh, to quite a, a lasting relationship with the country, um, traveling there on many occasions, working 
short term. And then in the early 90s, uh, we worked in a, a very remote hospital in the Mount Everest region for two years as volunteers. And that was really living in a village of about 300 people. Um, the nearest road was seven days walk away. Um, there was no no electricity. The only communication was a mail runner who came every two weeks and, and shortwave radio. So in uh, the most amazing environment. So again, a life changing event, which, uh, you know, taught us a lot. Uh, and, uh, and that led, that continued afterwards. I've had, uh, particularly with a, a relationship with a, a wonderful group of academics in a hospital in Kathmandu, a hospital called Patton Hospital, the Patton Academy of Health Sciences. And we have worked together um, on, a, on a number of uh, projects over the years, particularly around vaccine preventable infections in children. And, uh, and along with uh, colleagues from elsewhere, particularly a uh, long-standing friend and colleague at Oxford University, Andy Pollard. So, and that, that's still ongoing. So, so yes, very special relationship with Nepal and uh, I guess a second home for me. Sounds amazing. I, I've seen pictures of it. It looks so remote and, and uh, working those, with those communities must have been really rewarding. Mm. No, absolutely. I think, you know, think about my career to, to have witnessed um, measles outbreaks because of the breakdown of the immunisation programme and, and the devastating effects of, of measles, uh, tuberculosis and leprosy, uh, learning about public health uh, in remote villages and, and the kind of things that we have to do to try and address some of the, the key health issues. So yes, uh, it was uh, an amazing experience. And uh, I could hear from your story where you're talking about the connections that you made um, and fostered through that time in Nepal. And in, in wider science, international partnerships are essential for research on global challenges. As the global efforts to develop COVID-19 vaccines have demonstrated, how do you get involved with advising the University of Oxford for the trials of the COVID-19 vaccine? Was that through that um, connection you spoke of before? Yes, it, it certainly was. And, and I, you know, scientists around the world, we, we are so much more connected uh, than we were before. And, and that's you know, fostered by the many easier ways we can communicate and interact. And so being part of a global network of, of people who have similar interests and work together, that's fairly common in science nowadays. Uh, but certainly I have a, you know, worked very closely with the Oxford Vaccine Group, um, who have particularly in our work together in Nepal, so I've known that group, and, and particularly the, the director of that group, Andy Pollard, for a long time. So... Andy is, is now the, um, very much involved in the development of the, uh, the COVID vaccine that's been developed out of Oxford University. And, uh, when, and so I was invited uh, along with two other people to be independent members of the Clinical Trials Steering Committee for the Oxford Vaccine Trials. So that means it's really a, really a committee that gives some oversight and advice for all the clinical trials uh, that are happening at the moment on that vaccine. For me, seeing the, the scrutiny, but also engagement in the process of vaccine development, and it's highlighted how that process actually works to many people who hadn't engaged with that before. And what we've been seeing is that 
producing a vaccine is normally done over a long period of time. And the media's reporting is that the COVID-19 vaccine approaches is quite different. Can you tell me a bit of how what, that might be a bit different? Yes, well, I think you've touched on the, the first bit, which is the unprecedented interest in everyone suddenly in, in vaccine development, which, which has been, at one hand, wonderful to see the interest in it, potentially overwhelming with all of the interest as well. And the fact that we are in a situation where every country in the world wants to get a vaccine as soon as they can for a vaccine that hasn't been developed yet. And uh, I know we've heard the word unprecedented so many times this year, but it really, it truly is unprecedented. And so the normal situation is with a vaccine, we, we, the pace is a bit more relaxed. We, we have vaccines are developed, have um, uh, their evaluation, they're published, the information's disseminated and analysed. And then at a country level, uh, there are decisions are made uh, about is this a priority vaccine? Is convincing ministries of health and finance that this is something that should be funded and all of that process is, it needs to happen. Well, here we've got a situation, yeah, the vaccine's not even here, yet everyone wants it. And the issue about persuading governments is, is not there, but the need to accelerate a process that would normally take 10 to 15 years to get a vaccine to market. It wasn't so long ago, that would be the normal timeline. And now we're looking at, at some at a situation where we may have some vaccine candidates you know, ready or very close to being ready for manufacture toward the end of this year for an infection we didn't know about less than a year ago. And, and that is absolutely supersonic in terms of the speed. And so I guess your question is also around, you know, what has been, what has led to that? You know, how, how, how do you make the, the, the pipeline a lot shorter that make the development process faster. And that's come about through many ways. In fact, the technology side, that is a lot faster now. So in actual fact, for a lot of the vaccine candidates that, are, that have been evaluated, and there, there are something like 200 of them at the moment, uh, they, a lot of them, the type of vaccine was already there being trialled for others. And when COVID came along, it was switched to uh, the platform switched for COVID. In fact, that, for the Oxford vaccine, that's a good example of, of, of what happened there. So that was fairly quick. So, and then the, a lot of the regulatory side of things, the licensing that happens toward the end, a lot of that's been looked at now to, to make it happen alongside the, the technical development and the trials. So that process is sped up and doesn't hold it up. The manufacturing, getting that geared up early rather than wait until the very end once you've actually you know that this is something worth manufacturing, then doing it, getting that lined up early about where it happens and what sort of manufacturing is required. And in fact, the, the rate limiting step, the, 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 the part of the process that is now taking the most time at other clinical trials to be able to undertake the clinical trials to show that the vaccine is safe and effective there are ways we can make that more efficient without cutting corners, but that is now the, the, the as I say, the rate limiting step. So, yes, it's been amazing. And as we often know, in times of war or times of crisis, technology often moves ahead very quickly, like in, in times of war. That happened with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, where the vaccine development was really accelerated and ways to do that were really looked at. 
And so the world was better positioned when COVID came along than 10 years ago in terms of being prepared to quickly step up and uh, look at developing a new vaccine at speed. It's quite an amazing insight there. Um, and and the, the, how the systems are placed to shift so quickly is, is just mind-blowing. Coming back to international collaboration, have your experiences this year shaped or changed your views on international collaboration and the development of vaccines? Not changed, but probably strengthened the views that uh, we, need, we need more than ever to work together. And I think that's been seen with the vaccine development for COVID where uh, you know, no one country can do this really. And if you look at all of the vaccine candidates that have been evaluated, there are many parties involved. Uh, in, the, in their development and the evaluation and the assessment. And, and that's just, you know, it just has to happen in terms of just making sure we, we, we get the best possible outcomes, get as many candidates as we can, vaccines ready to be deployed, uh, to be able to manufacture them in the volumes that we need. It just needs, you know, everybody to be working together as much as we can. So. Uh, to me, that's kind of obvious. It's not always obvious to people with some tackling some problems, but I think it's this is a fantastic example of where we need to work together. And my visibility into the parts of the the development of, of the COVID vaccine around the world would indicate that it's not really a race against different vaccine candidates. The race is very much against the virus, and there's actually a lot of collaboration even between some of the different vaccine developers in terms of being able to uh, get to where we want to collectively. And that's great. That, I mean, that's really what we have to do. So it, it strengthened my views rather than changed them. And, and we've seen that on a, uh, a government scale as well. So in June this year, the UK hosted the Virtual Global Vaccine Summit, mm -hmm. Gavi, where nations around the world, including Aotearoa New Zealand, pledged funding to Gavi, facilitating access to vaccines that are protecting the world from future outbreaks of infectious diseases. And that goes wider than COVID-19. At the heart of Gavi is the issue of equitable access. I'm curious as what equity or the term equity means to you and how do you envision that we achieve this? Yes, uh, I mean, to me, equity is, is really fairness with equality and I guess is a way to sum it up and for the for the in the vaccine world uh, historically that has really has been about getting vaccines to parts of the world access to vaccines that are equitable that, that are fair parts of the world that may not be able to afford vaccines or have access otherwise to put uh, in place mechanisms to allow that to happen and certainly uh, the Gavi Alliance has been a key, a key initiative in that space, and has been very successful at getting, uh, enabling vaccines, getting access to vaccines in developing countries. And with with the COVID vaccine, the big concern everyone has is, uh, you know, what's called the vaccine nationalism, where through self-interest, uh, rich countries will purchase large amounts for themselves, um, you know, potentially. Uh, to the cost of other countries that are not able to do that. And that these countries that purchase them may not be the ones that really, you would say, are the highest priority areas. So it is really uh, for this 
for the vaccine initiative for COVID to be successful, it's got to address this issue. I think no one thinks that vaccine nationalism and self-interest is going to go away completely. Oh, that would be just totally unrealistic, but um, trying to do as much as we can to mitigate that. And that does involve everyone do it, playing their part, contributing to that global effort. So some of those initiatives that Gavi and Woodhouse Organisation and CEPI and other entities are doing, in my view, are absolutely the right thing to do. And we've got good examples of it happening before with Gavi. We've never seen it before on the global scale, and that's, I guess, the, the worry everyone has is just how we're going to manage this. So a lot of hard work, um, a lot of global responsibility that needs to be um, exhibited by governments as much as they can. A big task, but it, it is really critical. We've spoken a little bit about this already. So the, the world is racing to produce COVID-19 vaccines as quickly as possible. Uh, how do you ensure that we, alongside global availability of these vaccines, that these vaccines remain as ethical and safe as possible? And that's been the concern that if you're, if you're hurrying a process on, you may cut a few corners and may not, uh, you know, in particularly in terms of the assessment of how safe a vaccine is or how effective. So really the, what certainly needs to happen is that that primary focus on effectiveness and safety has to remain and, and, and needs to be done ethically. So that is really the cornerstone of the process still. And hopefully all of the licensing bodies and accreditation authorities have embedded in their requirements. Uh, it is absolutely essential. So, and I mentioned before about the clinical trials being the rate limiting step. That, and that's because we, we have a minimum standard. We, we really do need to know these vaccines are safe uh, and that they, they are effective as we would normally. So in fact, that should be a normal process. We should have the normal standards we would expect as much as we can. The media is buzzing with information on the global rush for COVID-19 vaccines. However, this is also being met with a plethora of vaccine misinformation. How has this impacted your work? And do you think that is the most effective means of, what do you think is the most effective means of communicating to a vaccine hesitant audience? Hmm. Well, I, I, I want the interest, I, I might say for a start, it hasn't all been bad. I mean, the interest has been good. It's actually good to have the public conversations about vaccines and the, the really, the great interest in science at the moment and vaccines is good. Um, it does require the careful communication and uh, people like myself have spent a lot of time this year explaining the science to the public. And that's, that's a critical, critical role that needs to happen. And, and it's, and it's not just, you know, hearing this from, from government sources, this does need to be from experts and scientists who are independent, just talking and explaining the science behind it and really sticking to the evidence. So, in terms of, we've talked about the safety issue and the concerns about rushing the, the evaluations, the clinical trials. Well, we just have to convey the message. Actually, no, these, these are, we're only interested in, in the rigorous clinical trials that meet the best ethical standards and show that these vaccines are safe and effective. And so it's, it's just going back to the evidence all the time. And for those that are concerned, again, is going back to, to the evidence. The misinformation is always a problem. And uh, again, it is 
going back to the evidence and just relaying the evidence. And you know, that, and that's, that's more than just vaccines. That's been every part of this journey with COVID. And we've learned a lot as we've gone along uh, because we didn't know a lot about it, obviously, with a new infection. We're learning as we go. And so the important thing is the science moves. Uh, no one remains rigid in their views. We all should be prepared to take on new information, change our views if necessary. Uh, but with the vaccine, the key thing is just to get the, the good science out there and communicated calmly and effectively to everybody. And including to the government, including to officials. Everybody just needs, we need to see that same message. And, and it's setting expectations too, because of course, this vaccine has been seen as plan A and this doesn't seem to be a plan B. And in fact, uh, things are you know, quietly optimistic for a vaccine, but the end will pop, you know, is it going to eliminate COVID from the world? I don't think so. It's going to get us in a better state where we have a lot of immunity to it. So we're going to minimize uh, the effects of COVID. The likelihood is COVID will continue, but become you know, less common, much more one of our regular infections that we, we have that cause uh, respiratory infections. Uh, but with a vaccine and with a lot of the population developing immunity, you know, that will make it much easier to manage and have a much great, you know, much less impact that it has at the moment. And people are, are quite um, emotive about about different new medications. It'll be interesting to see how people respond to uh, if there are any successful vaccines. No, I, I think that's right. But but you know we've we've been there before. I mean, with new vaccines, it's just big, the scale of what we're dealing with is bigger than we've had to deal with before all at once. But a lot of it is is very familiar to those who uh, are, are giving vaccines or involved in. Uh, national delivery of vaccines and all the rest of the logistics, et cetera, getting the messaging. You know, this, this is something that is, is very familiar to other people. We often finish this podcast by asking what worries you, what keeps you up at night. However, in a time when we are surrounded by information on the impacts of the pandemic, economic and social, I would like to ask you, what calms you? Is there anything that you do daily to bring some peace back into your day? Well, um, I mean, firstly, you're right. The, the, the COVID has been very distracting. Um, but in terms of calming, um, obviously, I have to first mention my family, wonderful wife and two daughters and extended family. And that's, that's absolutely critical at keeping things grounded in this crazy time. But, but I'm a luthier. I make string musical instruments, guitars. And uh, so in fact, that is my, my main distraction. And I know that um, I get a, a good balance in life when I'm, if I daydream during the day and it's about making guitars, I know I'm in the right spot. When I'm daydreaming the day and it's about work and worry, I know I need to get into the workshop more. So that's really important for me. Namiki Nui, Professor, it's been a fascinating discussion. You're welcome, Kate. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.